KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Camp Pendleton mourns the Marines who died in Kabul. These American service members who gave their lives, it's an overused word, but it's totally appropriate here, were heroes. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. In-person school starts again for students at San Diego Unified. At this point, they have a system in place so that if somebody does come down with symptoms or somebody does test positive, they have uh, options for handling that and not allowing a spread to happen. A child psychologist gives advice on back-to-in-person school jitters and a preview of San Diego's AfroCon. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. President Joe Biden paid his respects at Dover Airfield yesterday as the bodies of 13 American service members killed in Afghanistan were returned home. Ten of those killed, nine Marines and one sailor, were based at Camp Pendleton. It was the largest mass casualty event for personnel based at Pendleton during the entire Afghan war. Evacuations are still underway at the Kabul airport, where a suicide bomber killed the 13 Americans, plus at least 170 civilians. Officials say they expect more bombing attempts as the deadline to end the airlifts approaches. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. What do we know about why the evacuation has become a target for terrorists in Afghanistan? We know that the, the U.S. has uh, conducted drone strikes twice since the attack on Thursday that killed 13 troops and many more Afghans. The latest happened yesterday when a vehicle loaded with explosives was headed to the airport. At times, Americans have been told to stay away from the Kabul International Airport when the threat was imminent. Obviously, that's hampering the effort to get Americans out of the country. And speaking of that, it looks like the State Department was saying over the weekend that about 250 Americans still remain in Afghanistan. About uh, 280 self-identified Americans have been in contact with the State Department and are still kind of on the fence about whether or not they want to leave. And about uh, 5,550 Americans and, and possibly more have left since August 14th. But um, we're getting very close to the end, it looks like. When the president called in the U.S. military to support the evacuations, Camp Pendleton Marines were already deployed in the area. Tell us about that. So they're part of the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis Response Central Command. They had been deployed since February. They weren't really deployed specifically to help with the evacuation initially. They're just part of U.S. forces which are deployed around the globe so they can rapidly respond to any conflict. As the evacuation became a little clearer, though, they were positioned to be ready to go into Kabul, which a thousand of them eventually did. And how many Marines are still in Afghanistan helping with the evacuation? 
they really aren't saying who's still left in Afghanistan, but it became abundantly clear that now that they're going to stick to that August 31st deadline to get people out of Afghanistan. So the U.S. forces have been trickling out really since last week. We know that at the high end, there were close to 6,000 troops authorized to go into Kabul. There are far fewer now, but they're not saying exactly how many. Will the bodies of the Camp Pendleton Marines and sailor who were killed in Kabul be returned to Pendleton or to their hometowns? So, I mean, well, to their hometowns, I guess. And, and for some of those, that may mean coming back here. Some of these Marines um, may have made a life here. So it's potentially both. You know, most will be sent home to their families around the countries. Others, you know, uh, I know the wife of one sailor here who was about to have a baby. She's from San Diego, so he may be coming back here to San Diego. About half of the nine Marines and sailors were in the service for less than three years, so it's less likely that they put down roots here. Though three of the Marines were from Riverside and the Inland Valley, so their bodies will definitely be coming back to Southern California. And how will Pendleton honor the loss? So that's a still a little bit in flux. Chaplains have been deployed. There is grief counseling available. There's really no word on whether or not there will be something public soon or that they may wait until the unit comes back to Pendleton, which is scheduled to be sometime around in the fall. So when the Dark Horse Battalion, when they were honored, that ceremony didn't happen until really a year after they had come back from their deployment in Afghanistan. So we really don't know at this point. And right now, I think they're just trying to get their feet under them and reaching out to the families and the larger Pendleton community to make sure everybody's okay. Steve, what's supposed to happen after tomorrow, August 31st? Are all American troops supposed to leave Afghanistan? Yes, they certainly are. Um, My guess is they won't extend that deadline. Of course, nobody's talking to me. But uh, unless they're, they're trying to avoid being a target, you know, by telling the forces exactly when they're going to be leaving, I would say that they'll be out by end of the day on the 31st. And as that window for evacuations closes, you reported on groups of veterans who are trying to make sure that their former Afghan interpreters and comrades are able to get out of the country. What are they doing? So it's been called a digital Dunkirk. Um, There are all these veterans groups that have sprung up to help rescue translators and other Afghans who worked with the uh, U.S. forces. A lot of those folks are working right here out of San Diego. They're doing things like trying to get them good information from the State Department, as well as maybe help arrange flights. They're also trying to discourage other vets from like just trying to hot dog into the airport and land their planes, and you know which can actually cause some greater problems. We do know that um, we still have some folks uh, from San Diego who may still be there. I haven't gotten an update over the last couple of days, but we have some former translators that went back as well as we had some families from a local high school here. So they're going to have to get out of there quite soon because I think this deadline is going to stick. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. Today, San Diego Unified is welcoming students back to the classroom under a host of COVID policies and guidelines. While surging COVID cases have kept the atmosphere tense for in-person instruction, students are tentatively enthusiastic to be back on campus. Here's senior Sophia Marista and junior Titus Block. It definitely can be hard at some times. Sometimes the weather doesn't permit it to be easy. Um, But whatever keeps us in school and keeps us away from distance learning at home. They should 
you know, kind of let their students do it because being on campus helps them learn. And if, it, if politics are getting in the way of students learning, I don't think that's really the best option for them. Interim Superintendent Lamont Jackson shared what his fears were for the semester and why he felt the county's largest school district would be able to overcome any looming COVID threats. Unfortunately, you have to lean into your fears. And uh, we're not just good enough, we're more than good enough. And so that's the message that I want all students to know, all educators, all parents. We are better than enough. That's the message, and, and that's, that's a fear, is that, that people will question that in themselves. Joining us now with more on the opening day of the fall semester is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So is the mask mandate settled as far as the school district is concerned? Well, I got it from the interim superintendent himself. I asked that exact question, and he said, yes, it's settled. Uh, San Diego Unified made the decision that children will wear masks indoors and also outdoors. Uh, But what's important to note is they will have mask breaks. People think you put it on, you leave it on for six hours. That's not the case. There are designated areas, they are doing social distancing, and there will be opportunities throughout the day for students to remove them at, you know, several minutes at a time in order to make it through the day. Can you break down for us some of the key guidelines and regulations that students will have to follow in the classroom? It's very simple. It really does come down to the masks. It does come down to social distancing. Uh, Students are not required to to wear masks while they're eating. And also many of the um, athletic activities that go on outdoors, they will not be required to have masks. But when uh, on campus, uh, they will all be wearing masks. That is true of every teacher, administrator, and staff member on campus. Uh, Social distancing uh, is encouraged whenever available and possible. Uh, And of course, if there are any symptoms that somebody reports, that will be dealt with right away so that a possible spread doesn't happen. Will the district shut down again if county numbers increase? They go by the science. The superintendent told me that. um, And their goal is not to shut down again. We went through that, you know, last year. The goal is not to and If the county uh, declares that that is necessary, then that will happen. But at this point, they have a system in place so that if somebody does uh, come down with symptoms or somebody does uh, test positive, they have uh, options for handling that uh, and not allowing a spread to happen on a school campus. So what's the protocol for schools if a student or teacher tests positive for COVID? And how are parents notified and are students required to isolate? Well, we want to believe that we live in the best world possible and that communication is crystal clear. That is not always the case. But uh, it is what you might expect. And that is if somebody does test positive, the administration will immediately notify uh, the teachers involved uh, and, of course, the parents involved uh, for isolation or whatever is is needed in order to handle that situation. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you is that there will be voluntary uh, COVID testing on every school campus once a week. Now, if you're in a high school, it'll be all day uh, opportunity, and that's for students, staff, whoever wants it. In the uh, lower grades in elementary and middle schools, they'll do it for a morning in one school and then move to another. So everybody will have the opportunity to volunteer voluntarily be tested for COVID once, uh, at least once uh, a week. So what are students saying about this? They just want to be back in class. 
and they are excited to see their friends, to be socializing again. And to be honest with you, mask can be something of a, a status symbol. What mask are you wearing? What cool mask? Oh, you have Superman. Oh, you have rainbow colors. You have, you know. And so uh, they're really happy to do whatever it takes in order to remain in their classrooms on campus and not back home doing distance learning. Well, at least students have the capacity to make uh, safety protocols cool. That's true. (laughs) Does a doctor's note guarantee exemption, though, from wearing a a mask? Red alert. It does not. I interviewed Dr. Uh, Howard Terrace, who is the Dr. Fauci of San Diego Unified, if you will. Uh, And what he said to me is that almost 80% of the doctor's notes that they receive are not valid. And parents think, oh, I'll just get the doctor's note, I'll send it, and that's that. But it is not. If a student brings a doctor's note to a campus, there is a protocol. A nurse has to review it. Uh, Teachers have to be involved. There is a process to go through. So it is not an automatic. And in fact, in most cases, it is not going to be approved. Unless, of course, there is a real uh, health issue there. But the other thing is there are options for masks. So just because one mask doesn't work, you know, have you tried another? Have you tried, uh, you know, different uh, filters? Have there, there's several options that are available. So no, it is not guaranteed. And in most cases, according to the doctor we talked to, uh, they're not valid doctor's notes. And what are you hearing from teachers about this return to the classroom amid a surge in cases? Well, as you might expect, teachers are the unsung heroes, and they have survived a lot, and a lot was expected of them, especially last year. So they are all about supporting the mask mandates and whatever parents can do in conjunction with them and in community with them and administrators to make sure that their uh, children, the students, stay safe. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. It's back to school time. As you just heard, it is the first day of school for San Diego Unified. Many other schools are already back in session. But for the third year in a row, we are looking at a different kind of experience, one defined by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. If dealing with the illness itself weren't enough, debates over masking and vaccines have elevated the level of political discord and division to sometimes concerning levels. So as kids zip up their backpacks and get their pencils sharpened, how can parents best support them during this time? And what are some strategies they can employ to connect with their kids about coronavirus amidst the uncertainty and disruption it brings? To help us navigate these tricky topics with kids in mind is clinical child psychologist Dr. Ian Dr. Shear, welcome. Nice to be here. So do you have any advice for parents about how to talk to their kids about the coronavirus as they enter the new school year? I think one thing that is really helpful for parents to be mindful of is that although we've all been significantly impacted by the COVID pandemic, in my experience, the things that have been affecting and concerning children and teenagers often are very different aspects of the pandemic than those of us as parents and adults. 
So I think one thing that parents can really try to do in our efforts to support them as they go back to school is by being able to offer them a space to express what their concerns are. We may be surprised to find out how their concerns are valid for them, but different than what we're focusing on. And there's something about being able to be having an opportunity for our kids to express those concerns to someone who cares and someone who's trying to understand them that can really give them the support that they need at this time. Well, so what are some of the things that students are probably more a bit more concerned about that parents hadn't even thought of? Many kids, depending on the age of them, are really so focused on the social aspects of returning to school, of being in a different place, the changing in their structure, and the unpredictability that's happened throughout this pandemic. So I think just the uncertainty is something that many kids have on their minds and just a real desire in a sense to be able to feel that they have some predictability and control moving forward. They just want to know what's going to happen and what can they expect so they can adjust. How much should we be talking about the pandemic with children? Well, I certainly think that parents need to initiate the conversation. It's important because we can't rely that our kids will start it with us. At the same time, I think it's important to know what is the goal of having those conversations. And if our goal is to give them support, to make sure they know the necessary information so they can be safe and keep others around them safe, then those conversations are very important. I also think that in my experience working with kids, oftentimes we as parents are much more anxious than our kids are. And so I think we also want to be mindful to see, are these conversations helping our kids to be prepared for school, to be prepared for moving into the future? Or are we burdening them with our excess anxiety and doing more to give them stress and increase their anxiety than helping them? So what are some specific techniques parents can try to uh, talk to their kids amidst all the fear and uncertainty that the coronavirus can bring? Well, we need to ask them some questions. But like I said before, we really need to give them the space to, to share with us the way we help our children to feel safer, the way we help them to decrease their anxiety is by letting them be the ones who are doing the expressing. When our children are able to convey how they're feeling, convey their thoughts, their concerns, their fears and their confusions to someone who they feel is understanding them and cares, it really does a tremendous job in helping them to have the support they need to navigate the things that they're working through. Is there anything you'd hope kids could gain from this pandemic experience? As much as we don't like to think about it or recognize it, there, is, there can be good that comes from adversity. As parents, we, we hate, it pains us to see our children struggling, but we also often know from our own lives that those times when we had to deal and work through adversity is often the, the foundation that led to some significant growth and changes and uh, improvements in our lives. Uh, you know, in July, we talked to social worker Kim Eisenberg about what she referred to as COVID whiplash, this phenomenon where we thought we were through the worst of the pandemic, but then the rise of the Delta variant has really squashed that optimism. Here's what she had to say. We thought we were coming out of the woods and experiencing a return to normalcy or, or figuring out the new normal. And now all of a sudden we're faced with, there's no other way to put it, whiplash back to where we were, um, you know, earlier this year. So what is your take on COVID whiplash? Is this something you're seeing in your practice? I certainly am. It's, it's a really real thing. And it's really frustrating. I think we all got to a place where things seemed a bit more predictable and now we're a little bit back into the unknown. 
What I would say is that because of the Delta rise, things are a little bit less predictable. But I think this notion of whiplash is temporary. Have you seen a difference in your patients' mental health since the coronavirus uh, pandemic started? What I've seen to be the biggest struggle hasn't been um, as much the mental health of the teenagers and children I work with. What I've seen more of has just been real struggles in families, largely because families have approached the way they wanted to manage the threat of COVID so differently for various reasons, often necessity if they have at risk or elderly people in their homes, and other families handle it very differently. So it's really been a struggle for parents trying to set you know, the boundaries that they feel are necessary and safe in their home when they have children who have friends who are acting in a very different way. It's been a real big struggle for parents how to navigate in a way that's fair to their children, but also feels responsible to them. Let me ask you this question, because we talk uh, often talk about the resiliency of children, and you earlier mentioned how um, they, they overcome so much uh, adversity. Are students, you think, mature enough to understand the consequences of not wearing a mask, of not socially distancing, of not washing their hands? I, I, I certainly don't think that we could capture all children um, into one boat. I think many kids have a sensitivity and appreciation for it. I think it's also important that we recognize that from a developmental level, that would be a lot to expect and to put on children. Um, developmentally, their focus typically isn't you know, serving, protecting the community around them. We hope that that will be, and I would say even if your child isn't showing that at this moment, that doesn't mean they're not well on their way down that path. Um, but I do think that'd be a lot. And as a result, I think as parents, we need to continue to be responsible and to make sure we're enforcing the types of, of expectations that will keep everyone safe. And do you see any signs of optimism when it comes to our children's experience during the pandemic? Anytime we have a chance to change and shift our perspective on things, it allows for good things to happen. In the kids I work with in my private practice, things that were a really big deal two years ago really aren't that big of a deal. They're much smaller today. And um, I've often like chuckled almost myself that for 20 years, I've talked to kids about how much they hate going to school. And for the last 20 months, I've been talking with kids about how much they hate not going to school. And I think that there must be a silver lining in that. I've been speaking with clinical child therapist, Dr. Ian Shear. Dr. Shear, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. San Diego officials are taking more steps to address the chronically homeless. Plans are underway to open harm reduction model shelters, something that hasn't been done here yet. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has more on the upcoming county and city partnership. I think every San Diegan would acknowledge that the problem does not visibly, is not visibly getting better. Um, and as a consequence, we have to try different approaches, and this is what we're doing. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and County of San Diego officials are working to open new kinds of homeless shelters, ones that aim to help those with severe substance addictions. This is not a time to tell people who are willing to raise their hand and accept services uh, that they can't come in here. Um, and if that means uh, bringing someone in who is uh, heavily intoxicated uh, or in other kinds of active 
conditions that typically or historically have been barriers to admitting them into the service. What this, the county and the city are now saying is, no, we, we want to work with you. The new harm reduction shelters follow a month-long homeless outreach push in the downtown area. San Diego already has several bridge shelters where 100 or more people are staying in group settings. But these new shelters called safe havens are designed to be smaller, housing 25 to 50 people in individual rooms. To really bring online a new uh, a new capacity that doesn't currently exist. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher is partnering with Gloria to make this a reality. He says right now many shelters won't let those in who aren't sober or committed to being sober. But he says that drug use will not be allowed inside these new shelters. People aren't going to break the law in a government funded location. But it's about having an open door policy that says come as you are. Uh, in whatever state of mind you're in, we welcome you in. Um, and, and, and we're going to we're going to infuse that location with services. Fletcher says people may be staying there for a significant period of time. But I don't know that someone who's been on the streets for a decade who has chronic severe alcoholism and drug addiction, uh, it, 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 it's going to take some time. And that's why we, we did an initial five-year investment uh, in this project. We've got to make that investment. We've got to make a sustained investment. The county has committed to supplying specialized outreach teams, and it will split shelter operating costs with the city. We want multiple locations, but look, this is very challenging. Uh, I mean, everyone wants you to solve homelessness as long as you don't do it anywhere near them. Uh, and and so this is, uh, you know, it's difficult to identify locations, to find locations, to be able to get them going. City officials have been tasked with finding locations for the new shelters. Nothing has been announced yet, but Gloria says community buy-in is key for their success. I promise you that we can accommodate this into a community in a way that actually improves the neighborhood, reduces the number of unsheltered in the surrounding area. I believe that we can do this in a way that actually uplifts the neighborhood, doesn't harm it. Gloria says these harm reduction model shelters have been the missing ingredient for success here. We know that when we do that, it is far more likely that we can break that cycle of addiction, address the underlying mental health concerns, and ultimately get this person stably housed and off the streets for good. That's a part of the notion behind when I say I want to end chronic homelessness. This is how you do it. The city is using American Rescue Plan funding for the safe haven shelters. Then Gloria wants to approach the city council to fund them long term. It's a gap in our system and a part of why uh, we are not seeing the change that we want to see uh, in every one of our neighborhoods, a part of why we're spending more than we ever have, but we're not getting the results that we want. Uh, we want different results. So we're, we're choosing to uh, employ different tools, and I think we'll be proven uh, successful. He says the pilot shelter program is designed to get people who are chronically homeless off the streets, a goal that's also shared by Fletcher. We know that if we bring you in and we make that initial help to say, hey, we care about you, we want to get you some help that that will lead to the, the outcomes that we think are best. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a very different approach and path. The city and county want to open the shelters as quickly as possible. But right now, the timeline is fluid. Gloria says it's important to get them right the first time. It could be a city-owned facility staffed by county workers, um, and that could be it. It could be a privately-owned facility uh, with city and county teams with nonprofit partners as well. So uh, we're open on that suggestion because at this point in time, uh, we need to get this up and running. We need to start getting folks served in, in these safe havens. Joining me is KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Tell us again what the new harm reduction shelters will allow residents to do. For instance, can they drink alcohol inside the shelter? 
Well, so city and county officials say right now there's not a lot, if any, shelters that allow people to come in who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol, like being, you know, very drunk or very high. Um, and so these shelters will allow people, you know, if they are under the influence of a, of a drug, instead of being at, being able to go out and sleep on the streets, they'll allow them to come in. Now, both uh, Mayor Todd Gloria and both Supervisor Fletcher um, did say that, um, you know, that there's not going to be anything illegal going on in the shelters. So they're not going to be able to use drugs inside the shelters and things like that. Um, but they will be able to come in, uh, maybe not in a normal state. Can residents come and go as they please? It's my understanding that they can. Um, and in terms of like a length of stay, like are they just going to be there for, you know, maybe a night or two, like like the bridge shelters that we have now? Um, Supervisor Fletcher said um, he wouldn't be surprised if people stayed there for a while. Uh, he talked about someone suffering from severe drug use and taking them uh, sort of a while to recover, um, get to a state where they can get them some some services, some housing services and get them maybe their own place or in a, a group home. Is there any estimate on how many chronically homeless people in San Diego may need the help of harm reduction shelters? You know, I'm not sure if there's an exact estimate. You talk to some people um, who work uh, on the ground every day, so to speak, and, you know, they you, see, you hear things from them saying maybe about 20% of the people you see on the streets are those who are, you know, chronically homeless, been out there for years. Um, and they say that obviously that those are the hardest to help. Maybe they don't want help. Maybe they're uh, under the influence of some sort of drugs out there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's unclear what the exact numbers are. Uh, we do know in terms of these beds, um, they're going to be much smaller than um, shelters that we've seen in the past in terms of, you know, maybe a 50 bed maximum or even a a shelter that's 25. And we know that they want multiple around there. So not as big as the other shelters that we've seen. So how many locations are officials thinking of opening? They wouldn't say exactly. Um, and, and I'm hearing that there's definitely one that's, that's coming up in the works. Um, but you heard Supervisor Fletcher in that story say that they want multiple locations. Uh, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria sort of akin it to uh, a needle in a haystack trying to find the right place that works with the community, but that also works um, with the, the shelter that they want. So he was saying, you know, it could be a city funded building uh, in terms of maybe like an old library or something like that, that they put these people in. Uh, but it could also be a private building as well, too. So they're really looking at all their options. And we know they want to move fast. We just don't know when exactly these are going to open. Now, city and county leaders sound as if they expect some NIMBY pushback when they are trying to find these locations for the shelters. You have Mayor Gloria saying he believes the shelters can uplift neighborhoods and not harm them. Have they offered any idea how that might be possible? Yeah, so Gloria talked about how, you know, many times, you know, from when he was on the city council to his position in state leadership, um, that when these kinds of projects are announced, that there's a, a, a usually a concern. And, you know, Mayor Gloria described as an understandable concern in terms of, you know, bringing a homeless shelter over there. He talked about some of those concerns relating to like loitering and littering in the community. Um, but he says that, you know, past projects that he's done has been able to prove that they can overcome that. And he's sure that they'll be successful with this. But, you know, no exact details on what that looks like yet. Um, keep in mind, they haven't even announced. Uh, any sites yet. The harm reduction model that these shelters are based on may be new to San Diego, but other cities like Los Angeles have been using that approach to homeless outreach for quite some time, and it hasn't ended homelessness there. I'm wondering why are San Diego city leaders so hopeful about this plan? You know, basically because they say it's low 
barrier sheltering, you know, low barrier housing in terms of, you know, you can, you know, literally be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, um, and you're not going to be turned away. Um, and, you know, uh, you heard Mary Gloria say that this is not the time to turn people away um, who are the most in need, the, some of the chronically homeless, the ones that are suffering from uh, whether it be mental health issues or even some drug issues. Um, so they're hopeful that, you know, even if it's a slow start at first in terms of just bringing somebody in for a meal, that they can sort of gain their trust in that way and then, um, you know, find the outcome they want, which is eventually getting them housed. Any estimate on how long it may take to get the harm reduction shelters up and running? So when the city started um, their summer, you know, downtown homeless outreach push for a month where they had all these different nonprofits coming in, uh, trying to get as many touches as they, as they can on people, try to get them in one of those bridge shelters for, you know, at least that night, maybe a few more nights, get them some services. Uh, the city officials and county officials said that they were shooting for an August announcement. Uh, obviously, we are nearing the end uh, of, of August here. Um, and speaking to Mayor Gloria and Supervisor Fletcher, it seems like that they're still trying to find some sites. Um, and Mayor Gloria said that the timeline is fluid right now. Now, we know we hear from, um, you know, both of them that they want uh, to get these up and running as fast as possible. You know, you hear Mayor Gloria talking about this, you know, in his eyes being the missing piece in terms of uh, ending chronic homelessness. So um, as quick as possible, we'll see what that means, Maureen. And how are they being funded? It's the city's responsibility financially to find the space for the shelters and then, you know, pay for everything else related. So that's like water bills, heating bills. Um, and then the county and the city are going to be splitting the operating costs of that shelter um, in terms of the staffing that's going to be there and everything. Um, and then the county's committed to having some specialized outreach teams to help people while they're in there and to go out there and find people. Uh, the county says they've committed five years of funding for that. Um, you know, I, I asked Mayor Gloria what he would like to see. Um, and, you know, right now the city in terms of their financial responsibility, they're going to be paying with American Rescue Plan dollars. Um, that's like some of that COVID relief money. Um, and we know that that is one-time funding. Uh, in San Diego, Mayor Todd Gloria, he says that he wants to approach the city council when he can prove that these will work. He's very confident about that. Um, he wants to go to the city council and ask for some long-time funding. So it sounds like that they want him to be around for at least a few years. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Oceanside's beachfront has been undergoing renovations, and now attention is shifting to the city's 102-year-old amphitheater and a nearby community center named for the late Junior Seau. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us the Seau family has started a petition to keep the facilities intact for the community. Mary Seau thinks of her brother Junior whenever she walks the Oceanside Strand. Um, I can feel the spirit down here, freedom, joy, happiness. Um, just excited to be around the people. In 2012, the Junior Seau Amphitheater and Community Center were named for the Oceanside native and pro football player. Since 1919, when the amphitheater was built, cultural celebrations and events have taken the amphitheater stage. But Oceanside Mayor Esther Sanchez says she's noticed a decrease in events and sports. She says COVID is part of the problem, but so is scheduling. Well, I've heard from a lot of voices from the community that it's really, really hard to get an event going here. You know, whether you're a nonprofit or a church or, you know, anyone, a private citizen wanting to have an event, it's always been very difficult and I don't understand why. So when the city presented a beachfront improvement study looking into the amphitheater and community center, Sanchez got concerned. So when the city decided, okay, let's go ahead and um, start looking at, say, include the, the, the beach community center, a lot of bells and whistles started going off in my head like, okay, great, 
Is this for the continued use of the youth and families? And um, I'm very concerned about where this is the direction this is heading. Food vendors and bike rental companies are already operating outside the community center. And Sanchez worries more commercial activity will work its way into the public parkland. Rumors of demolishing the facilities and putting a parking structure in its place have started to swirl among the community. Dara Woods is a senior civil engineer with the city of Oceanside managing the project. She says it's just starting and no plans or proposals have been presented. Says we know how important this area is to the city and the local community. So that's why we really want to know what the public wants to see. Um, there are city needs, but the public needs are just as important and that's what we want to hear. But Mary Sayow is not taking her chances and has started a petition to make sure the facilities are saved. What I would like to see is have them fix the problem, fix the, um, the broken walls, fix the, um, the, the stairs, fix the community um, center, um, um, the community center building. Have them fix it, but don't demolish it. This belongs to the city of Oceanside. Other Oceanside residents have mixed opinions. Doug Boyd thinks it needs to be torn down. I'd love to see it renovated and maybe have concerts here or something would be great. Um, the other option, I think you see kids skateboarding here all the time, maybe make a skate, a skate park for the kids to uh, come down to. Um, same thing with the uh, gym down there. I don't know if they ever use it anymore down there. So we're not, it's, it's, it's like prime property down here. Why don't they, uh, I think it needs to be remodeled and something done with it. Renovations would be very good. The destruction though, I don't think is necessary. That was Joey Daly, who runs a snack shack and bike rentals near the community center. And Oceanside resident Coco Brown had this observation. Plus it's historical. This is what we know. So tearing this down, it'll, it'll just be problematic. Nobody wants to see that. I mean, it's a genius thing. A public input meeting is scheduled for Tuesday at 6 p.m. at the Oceanside Library community rooms. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In 2018, the movie Black Panther vividly placed Afrofuturism into the mainstream consciousness. That was also the year San Diego saw its first Afrofuturism lounge. AfroCon, happening this Saturday and Sunday, is an offshoot of the Afrofuturism lounge. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with organizer and co-founder Lawana Richmond and promotions coordinator CJ about the event and about what Afrofuturism is. Luana, AfroCon is having its first incarnation this weekend, so explain to people what this is going to be. 
So it's a, I guess for lack of a better term, it's a black comic con. So we're going to have comic book creators, producers. We're going to have director from um, The Flash. We're going to have Kevin Grivio from Underworld. But then he also has a comic book. John Jennings. Keith and Jones, of course, will be there. And Rodney Anderson, some local artists. And there'll also be lots of really good food. Because one of the things we figured out the very first year is as much as people like comic books, they also like to eat. And there'll be a DJ and music and some surprises. And there'll be cosplay contests each day um, with cash prizes for the best costume. And there's an after party Saturday and Sunday for adults who want to adult. And just to be clear, this is going to be the first year for AfroCon, but you said you learned about having food at events and having that attract people, and that's because you've been a part of the Afrofuturism Lounge, which came about during Comic-Con. Yes. And so, I mean, just to be clear, the Afrofuturism Lounge started off as an after party. We were going to have a private party where we invited some industry insiders to like just celebrate and have a good time after Comic-Con. And someone suggested that we open it up to the public and we didn't change the name, but we definitely changed the framework and the um, vision for the event. Um, That first year, it actually became a mini con. We just didn't call it that and didn't realize we were going to have such a huge turnout. That first year, we had like 700 people show up. And so AfroCon is just taking the name and turning it into what it is. So AfroCon is short for Afrofuturism Convention. And when I talk about what it is, I need to also add that Ronaldo Anderson, Yul Anderson, Tim Fielder, and some other members of the Black Speculative Arts Movement will be making appearances to talk about things from a futurist standpoint. And for those people who may not be familiar with Afrofuturism, can you describe what that is? The term Afrofuturism was coined by Mark Derry, in 1993 in a collection of essays called Cyberculture Flame Wars. And he basically was using it to describe science fiction, art, music, visual creative arts that center the African-Americans in the future augmented by technology. And then people started using it to also refer to world building and creating visions of the future. And um, the real thing was about inclusion because science fiction um, historically did not include people of color at all. But I have to also say that the term Afrofuturism, the the better term would be Sankofa, which is um, a West African concept that is represented by a bird um, with its feet planted in the present its head turned around facing it back to represent the past and an egg in its beak to represent the future. And it's really about how the past, the present, and the future are all connected. So CJ, you are helping out with this event. And what attracted you to AfroCon? A a lot of different things. For one, I had been seeing uh, different uh, incarnations of Afrofuturism, and I didn't have I didn't know the name of what I was viewing. I met Dr. Lawana and she kind of gave me the name of what I was looking at and I knew I was drawn to it and we just continued to dialogue and continued to um, give me a better understanding of, of it and speculative arts movement. I thought a lot of other people would be interested and boy was I right as I um, started to um, promote the event So, Luana, what can people expect from AfroCon? Is it going to be panels, after parties? What will there be? 
So there will be um, some panels and workshops. I actually have someone who's going to teach coding to kids who come to his coding workshop. The discussions are going to vary from like careers in comic books to the future of the food supply chain. And there will be, of course, lots of great food. There will be a 360 photo booth. And the cosplay competition, I'm really hoping that cash prizes will make people step up their game and um, come out and show off their skills. And we kept the Afrofuturism Lounge, both of the the after parties. You know, the Afrofuturism Lounge was supposed to be an after party. So now we've got that concept. And um, those parties will be in the gas lamp at the Phantom Lounge this time, this year. And why do you feel it's important to showcase Afrofuturism? You know, in the last year, there's been a lot of social justice activity. There are a lot of things that people are unhappy about. Um, I'm unhappy about some of those things as well. But I think it's very important to always look forward and take ownership of creating visions and manifesting the reality of things being better. I think that Afrofuturism gives space for um, creating solutions to some of the problems that plague us today and also creating opportunity and helping people to see that even though things aren't exactly the way you want them to be and you can't change everything or change things overnight, there are small incremental changes that we can each make in order to make our lives better and to make society better. And CJ, what are you looking most forward to at this AfroCon? The costumes and also um, the people's imaginations. Just people coming up with future solutions to um, real-world problems today. And Luana, you're involved in education. So what do you hope the role of AfroCon can be in terms of making Afrofuturism more a part of students' education? So I think, you know, really I see it kind of as a spark. Um, There are a few things. One, most of the people in my life who are creative, they had a lot of people around them giving them the Hollywood shuffle line. You know, there's work at the post office. You don't need to do this creative stuff because it doesn't pay. And so I want people to, one, parents to see that you can encourage your children to pursue their passions and their avenues and opportunities for them that you wouldn't even imagine. The other part, of course, is always to help to increase the awareness of agency when it comes to creating sustainable change. In terms of schools, I mean, I think Black History Month, I don't want it to go away, but I really would like to see Black Futures Month. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the kids, they only get to hear about what's wrong or they get to hear about history and social studies and science in a perspective and point of view that doesn't center them and doesn't necessarily highlight things that they can connect to. And I'm hoping to create space for um, more of those connections. And what is the cost for the event? Oh, you know, it's so very, very expensive. It's zero (laughs) dollars. Cost containment and sponsorship allow for that. And then the only things that I'm charging for would be if someone wanted like um, a VIP badge and a t-shirt, we'll be selling t-shirts on site. And then um, $10 to enter the cosplay contest. All right. Well, thank you both very much for talking about AfroCon. Thank you. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Lawana Richman and CJ about this weekend's AfroCon. The event takes place this Saturday and Sunday at the Jackie Robinson Family YMCA. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.